and welcome to the Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald. And this week we have a live recording from Terry Dwyer's excellent talk last week, uh, Land is the Key to uh, Ending Bad Taxes, where he really delves into the depths of uh, tax avoidance and some of the tricks that go on amongst companies. So uh, imagine you're listening to a lawyer discussing how economists are missing the point in the tax avoidance game. All right, let's go straight to this uh, jam-packed show. I often say to people, look, the economics of taxation is very simple. But it's also very true that most economists know nothing about taxation. Most tax economists know very little about taxation. And I was reminded of this the other day when looking at a LinkedIn website where there were professional tax advisors and lawyers and people like me, I am also a solicitor who advises on tax matters. A solicitor made the comment, I went to the London School of Economics and not one lecturer in economics there knew nothing about taxation. And he said, he was commenting on the letter signed by 355 economists supporting Oxfam's campaign against tax havens saying it had no legitimate use. And he was commenting that these economists don't know what they're talking about. And actually, speaking as a tax lawyer, I think it was absolutely spot on because most of them don't understand. But if you really want to understand tax policy and you want to understand tax economics, You've got to remember that everything that exists, everything that serves us in our economic activity is the product of the union of land, of labour, and in this trinity, that which proceeds from the union of both, capital. Um, it's interesting how you get threes in various ways in, in geometry, in triangles, you get it in theology, in the trinity, and we get it in economics. So we have a trinity of productive factors of production. And out of that, you get the flow of goods and services that meet our material needs. Look around this room where land below us on which this building, which is capital, is erected. We're sitting in chairs. My hands are on this lectern. And we've got ourselves. We've got our thoughts, our minds, our ability to perform things. Um, you can think of labour as the active principle of production. You can think of land as the passive, that which is there to be wrought, and capital as the product. Now, the trouble is, most economists don't really reflect on that. Most of them are trained in neoclassical school, where they, for mathematical reasons, they just think there's only two things, capital and labour. And part of the reason for that was a reaction against Henry George's progress and poverty. And Henry George took the classical economics, which always emphasised the difference, and it goes back to the physiocrats, where um, Mirabeau, I think, wrote that uh, the invention of the economic uh, table by Francois Canet, who was the physician to Louis XV, was the greatest invention for mankind since the discovery, I think, of the wheel or writing, I've forgotten which. But he was right, because in a way the physiocrats had seen that land was crucial, and they were revolting against the tax system of medieval France, which had become so corrupted they could see the internal taxes on trade, tariffs on people moving around, they could see what it was doing to the French economy and people, and they wanted to reform it. It's a great pity they failed. It's a great pity that Turgot got sacked as the Minister for Finance, because there may not have been a revolution, and there was a terrible price France and Europe paid for that. But um, getting back, um, 
to summarise it, I would say there's, if you want to understand tax policy, there's only three things you can tax, land, labour or capital. Some people think there is such a thing called income you can tax. They think there's a thing called consumption you can tax. <coughs> Rubbish. Income and consumption are not tax bases. They are what accrues in three bits. Income is the rent of land, the wages of labour or the profits of capital. Income doesn't exist as an abstract you can see, define or touch. And when you have it translated into legal terms, um, it's easy to see why lawyers have a lot of fun with economists because we have these silly people thinking they understand things, giving instructions to the parliamentary draftsman to draw up a tax to tax something called income. Now, income tax was invented by William Pitt the Younger and um, in the circumstances of the Napoleonic War in 1798, he was doing very well to do it because he had read his Adam Smith. Adam Smith had been published in 1776. He wanted to raise money to fight the French Revolution and to defend um, British liberty, and God bless him for that. He also was a little fascist at the time. He did want to suppress the press when uh, Charles James Fox made his magnificent speech in defence of a free press. But he had to tax the landholders and he wanted to do this by taxing incomes. Now in those days, he didn't say we're going to tax income. He had a scheduler system. He said, well, what do we want to tax? The rent of lands. He wanted to make the aristocracy pay. And he knew he had to make the landed people pay. He couldn't dump it all on, on the workers through raising excise taxes or he'd have revolution. And remember, in Pitt's, um, Pitt had mutinies in the, in the Royal Navy, unheard of at the Nore and, uh, and Spithead. So he knew he couldn't just soak the poor. And Adam Smith had warned against taxing the poor and taxing ordinary working people because Adam Smith told us what would happen and is happening now to Europe. If you tax ordinary working people, what do they do? They don't breed. You diminish what Smith called the supply of useful labour. And he was totally against taxing the necessities of life. Which is why when people oppose the GST and say there's something wrong with it, their natural instincts are economically right. They're not wrong. Treasury's got it completely wrong, saying it's efficient to tax everything uniformly. That's only true if the thing you're taxing is uniform and of the same nature. Anyway, Adam Smith had warned about this. And um, so Pitt said, well, we'll tax the landholders. We'll tax interest on money. Now, why tax interest? Well, at that stage, the British government, because it didn't dare tax uh, the working people to death, wanted to raise, borrow to, uh, to finance the war. And they had massive fiduciary issues of, um, of currency during the Napoleonic Wars. And they had massive British government loans. And that's where the English consolidated debt from, comes from, which you'll see in the old textbooks referred to as consuls, two or three percent consuls. Um, and they um, issued um, those consuls to the bondholders. Now, you can imagine the problem of saying to ordinary people, professional people and merchants, you'll pay tax on your trading profits, you'll pay tax on your wages, um, but the bondholders who are making all the money out of lending the government money to, to run a war weren't going to be paying anything. So obviously you would tax the interest on the bondholders. So, but basically Pitt did not really want to tax ordinary working people, so the original income tax had a very large exemption for it. The, the ordinary working bloke 
and his family did not pay any income tax. And the idea was he didn't wish to diminish the supply of useful labour, to use Adam Smith's phrase. So <clears throat> Pitt understood that, but unfortunately the people who followed him and took up income tax gradually lost sight of that vision that his income tax was not designed to tax all income equally or uniformly. It was actually designed to exempt the wages of labour for practical purposes and only tax supernormal profits. But um, anyway, be that as it may, it took on its life of its own. But if we go back to it, there's only three things you can tax. The earnings of land, labour or capital. And there's only one of them that can't run away, that can't stop breeding, that can't shirk, disappear, demand a wage rise, strike against a fringe benefits tax or anything like that, that can't be hidden in a Swiss bank account, that doesn't require what Adam Smith called a vexatious inquisition into every man's personal and private affairs, that lawyers can't sidestep, and, I, and I'm not blaming lawyers in saying this, I am a lawyer. I take great professional pride if I can save a client some money in tax by structuring his affairs so that no tax is payable. People do not come to their tax lawyers to learn how to pay more tax. They come to basically, for some strange reason, because they actually don't like forking out money. And they want you to tell them, can I legally reduce the amount of tax I pay? And in a system which is based on an artificial construct such as income, and which doesn't go back to the original factors which produce the income, there is always a question of case law, of interpretation. You're not looking at something that exists in a state of nature when you talk about income from a legal sense. Whereas when you talk about land, if you go to the root of it, you talk land, labour and capital, well, the obvious way to tax the income from land is to just look at the value of the land, whack a rate on it, and that will come out of the income of the land and you're forcing it to be put to use. You don't have to chase it up. It can't be moved offshore. It can't be hidden. It's not going to be in Panama. You're sitting on it. So, um, so I say to people, basically, tax policy is very simple. And the beauty, economists would say, they do admit this, actually. Any economist who's ever studied this knows that it's the oldest theorem in economics that a tax, a tax on land values or land rent cannot be shifted. And it has no detrimental effect. It is, in fact, a perfect tax because if I get hit with a tax, I might um, be a slacker. I might do as I do and given I've got a bit of a public service superannuation and some savings, I might be not the most keen and hardworking of professionals and maybe my professional income should be a source of professional embarrassment because I don't work hard enough. You know, you, you just can adjust your lifestyle to suit yourself. If you try to tax capital, as we've seen with the Panama Papers, people will say, well, hang on, income, income, income. Hmm. Well, what is income? Whose income? Can I shift the source of the income? If I'm doing business here in Australia, can I arrange it? So in fact, the supply of the goods or services or the income is not connected with Australia. If I'm Google, for example, I might have my web server or, or site in California or in Singapore or in Ireland or somewhere like that. Can I charge fees to divide up the income and the production processes so the income accrues in a jurisdiction 
which has a 0 or 5% or 10% tax rate. And once you get to intellectual property, um, the ability um, to shift the sources of your income to whichever part of the world you want to widens up ama uh, amazingly. Actually, I should tell a joke here. Um, um, I personally don't believe much in intellectual property. Like Henry George, I've come to the view that patents are basically immoral. And he has a footnote in Progress and Poverty on that. And I wrote a submission to the Productivity Commission inquiry into patents and compulsory licensing, suggesting, in fact, that it should be abolished. But I did point out the reasons why I thought patents suppressed innovation more than supporting it and why they were used as instruments of monopoly. But I did put in a wry comment, which I thought that at least provoke them. I said something to the effect that um, there is, however, one good argument for patents in that they facilitate the avoidance of Australian tax in the following manner. You get your R&D development grants and your deductions for developing this, the intellectual property in Australia. You then assign it to your Swiss subsidiary before its commercial value is known and then you license back to Australia and strip out your profits and claim the active income exemption on our controlled foreign company legislation. So anyway, I thought that would at least provoke them. But they did what the public service always does. When you are presented with a submission you can't answer, you make sure you put it as you have to in the submissions, but nowhere in the text of the report will you find a reference to any of the arguments. That's the standard operating procedure. And uh, I do know it as a former public servant, whenever we got a letter, if it was a very good letter and you couldn't answer it, you'd just answer little bits you could and just pretend the other bits didn't exist. <laughs> it's a standard operating procedure. So I had a wry smile. But, but um, so you can see how amused I was when I saw that um, in all of this stuff about tax avoidance a couple of years later and, and, and people were talking about base erosion and profit shifting and how terrible it was, oh, the penny drops. Oh, intellectual property is being used to shift profits around the world. And I thought, wonderful economists, where are you? Where have you been all these years? Lawyers have been doing this for 50 years. <laughs> and it's exactly making the point that income in the legal sense is not something that exists in a state of nature, unlike land. I mean, land is natural. You can see it, you can touch it. Um, but income, it's, a, it's a, a legal construct. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist. Today we're hearing from Dr Terry Dwyer, former economist to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, and tax lawyer, giving us some um, insights from the legal profession on tax avoidance. So... That brings me then to the question of when tax rates are rising and people are quite naturally doing what they can, particularly starting with mobile and financial capital, which is the most easily shiftable form of claims to real capital. I mean, this is real capital, something a physical produced means of production. That is what the classical economists would have called capital. But the most economists confuse that with financial capital because they use the same word and what they're talking about as capital are really financial claims to a share of profit arising from the union of land, labour and capital. They're talking about claims to, to profits or interest from trading companies, etc. Now, financial capital, which economists think of as if it were this, this can't be moved. Physical capital can't be moved. But if you tax it, you guys may not be repairing this building. You might not be painting it. You might let it run to rack and ruin and run at a substandard level of maintenance. 
uh, as in New York, if you look at the slums of New York, you want to see why they have a miserable place. They have a huge um, tax on improved capital values, which, and they wonder why they've got slums. But financial capital can react to a tax far more easily than this can even. Financial capital, with a stroke of the pen, and with a bit of work, and I shouldn't make it sound too easy. It's a lot of good, hard legal work to do this. People, lawyers should be paid for their efforts. <coughs> can be shifted. I can take assets, if I'm a lawyer, and of any reasonable skill, and there are lawyers of reasonable skill, I can take assets in Australia and gradually get them into the ownership of a, a company or a trust in Panama or the Bahamas or Bermuda, wherever you like, um, uh, without actually having the ultimate owner have to shift his residence and leave his lovely house in Sydney or Melbourne. Now, of course, what do governments do when they see this occurring? They say, oh, shock, horror, that's tax avoidance. Naughty, naughty, you shouldn't think of this thing. And, and uh, before they get onto that jag, um, I remember a comment made by a fellow called Barry Bracewell-Milnes in his book on the, I think it was the economics of tax avoidance. And he posed a question, which I don't think an economist has ever answered. And he said, look, if you impose a tax on profits and you have two men running factories, one man decides to close down his factory and shift the jobs offshore to China. He is avoiding the tax. He is reacting to the tax and moving offshore. The other fellow goes to the city of London and gets a very skilled solicitor and sets up an offshore <coughs> company to take over the English company or take over its intellectual capital and supply services back to it and reduce its tax. The first form of tax avoidance he called economic tax avoidance because you actually have an economic response to the tax. That is not regarded as blameworthy. The second form, which leaves the business operating in the country and employing people and so on, is legal tax avoidance. In other words, tax avoidance by legal means, but it's frowned upon and treated as something we should wipe out. It's not evasion. Evasion is non-disclosure or, or, um, or uh, or a <coughs> willful breach of the tax laws. It is, a, let's assume it's legal. If it's legally minimised tax, somehow that's to be attacked. And he said, well, which actually has done more economic damage to the country? The chap who's actually at least continuing to employ people in the country and paying them some wages and hopefully through competition for their labour, keeping up living standards in the country, or the one who's just closed down the factory and moved it offshore? So he made this point contrasting economic and legal tax avoidance. Anyway, be that as it may, governments have said, said uh, and particularly in France you'll see this, people have talked about Chinese stealing jobs. But of course you can't say that too loudly because the Chinese are a big, powerful country and they may say, well, hang on, we're working for it. Well, I mean, our workers have paid less than yours, they've become productive and uh, we deserve our prosperity. So... <clears throat> So what the, the whole thrust of condemnation has been aimed against legal tax avoidance and particularly international tax avoidance. Um, in a way, you could say the superannuation system in this country, some people have said it, is a form of legal tax avoidance. I don't see it that way. I think it's a mucked up system of trying to average out personal exertion income over a lifetime. And there is certainly a strong case for superannuation for wage income. Otherwise, people who'd work for 30, who earn their 
incomes in 30 years might be living for another 30 with zero income. It's just a method of spreading out an arbitrary method of taxing labour income. But uh, leaving that aside, um, there has been a huge amount of hostility to international tax avoidance and you've now found that you, the European powers, France, Germany, Britain now, and the United States have all got upset about companies like Apple and Google who hire good brains and they do their work, they study the laws, they operate in many countries, designing their businesses so that in fact they don't pay tax in many countries because they don't have much of a permanent establishment there. Now to understand this I'll take you through the history of the international tax treaty system. The whole tax treaty system was designed from colonial days through World War I and the League of Nations through the post-war period. It was designed actually to shift profits for taxation purposes. Most people don't realise this. It was designed to shift profits from colonies or dominions like India, Australia, New South Wales or Victoria, to London or to New York where the profits could be taxed by Washington or London and used to fund things like the Royal Navy. Now we didn't mind that. The Royal Navy was protecting us from the Russians, it was protecting us from the Germans etc and hopefully the Japanese. Unfortunately the Prince of Wales and Repulse got sunk and uh, Churchill made a mistake of underestimating his opponents which um, he uh, usually didn't do. I mean he had a couple of losses but uh, anyway. Um, but the whole system was designed to actually reduce the taxing rights of the source country where the income was generated in favour of the residence country as it's called, the country where the taxpayer was resident. And the whole income tax framework that the economists are working with and the lawyers have been working, they're not the lawyers but the government lawyers have been working with for the last hundred years has been that the a taxpayer should pay tax where he lives and all, in, all his income from all the world should be taxed in the country where he lives. Now some countries have not followed that view. Some countries like Hong Kong, the Latin American countries traditionally have operated a principle of pure territoriality. If the income is derived or earned in our, within our borders, we can tax it. If it arises outside our borders, it's not our concern. We have no jurisdiction, we won't tax it. I personally think that's a much more sensible view. But the whole international treaty architecture was designed so that, for example, and sometimes unilaterally it rose by accident, it's organic, no one ever sat down, wrote out a map and saying here's how we're going to tax international business for the next hundred years. It grew like topsy and, and grew organically from thing to thing. But basically the rules were worked out, and I'll run through them simply, and international tax is a fascinating subject. But the basic rule is this, is if you trade within a country, you are taxable on your profits there. If you trade with a country, you are not taxable on profits coming out of that country. And this is enshrined in the double tax treaties by the idea that before you are subject to tax in a treaty country, you have to have a permanent establishment there. You have to have a branch, an office, something that is actually an a business of its own. So, um, and the treaties then specify what will constitute a permanent establishment and they'll say, well, a what's a permanent establishment? Um, is it a permanent establishment 
if I have someone um, who's an agent in a country. Like, for example, if I have a stockbroker buying and selling shares for me in London, is he a permanent establishment of mine? And should I therefore be paying tax on my British profits on my share trading? Well, they quickly discovered, well, hang, have them. Hang on, our, our stockbrokers can't be sorting out which clients they're acting for and saying, well, this is a permanent establishment, this isn't, and so on. So basically, independent agents were exempted. So if you do a business in a country through an independent agent carrying on his own business, you are not carrying on business in that country and are not taxable on its profits there. So foreigners usually do not pay capital gains tax on anything except real estate, on any trading business they do within a country. Um, they then have rules about representatives if I'm not actually doing business in the country, but I have two or three guys there who are not selling anything, but simply soliciting orders, which, where I then take the order, but I make the machinery back in Germany or America and send it out to Australia, does that mean I'm taxable on the profits? And the answer is no, it's not a permanent establishment. So all of these rules have been elaborately worked out. Now suddenly, what's happened is because people have learnt how to use tax havens, and often, by the way, tax havens are not used to avoid tax. They're used to avoid double or triple tax because most tax systems don't integrate properly. For example, um, if you're an American uh, in Australia, your superannuation fund is treated by the Americans as a tax haven trust, whereas we think it's perfectly okay and it should be exempt. You have mismatches all over the place between tax systems. Um, anyway, the rules as they were designed were, don't work perfectly and then you've got countries like Ireland say, well look, hang on, it is the bloody Irish, you know. They, they helped, helped start the demise of the British Empire, and I'm Irish, but they started this, the rebellious people, they, they started um, to, they started thinking, well hang on, we're a small country, how do we compete? And like Singapore and Hong Kong, they thought, oh gee, maybe low taxes and low tax rates. Maybe we can offer American corporations access into the common market. Maybe all these companies that are trying to avoid having permanent establishments in London, like Google and Apple and so on, or, or the manuf American manufacturers operating through the European Union, if we give them a good deal on their tax rates, they'll employ lots of Irish people. We've got lots of skilled graduates. We'll collect the income tax of the graduates whose wages are being bid up by these American companies, and we'll just give them a 12.5%, 10% tax rate. They will undercut the Brits across the, across the Irish Sea and, um, and will undercut the Germans and we will make money out of that. And the Irish did, actually, and they did very well out of that. The Celtic Tiger was born. And, um, and uh, so you saw this situation where countries were competing in legal structures, they're competing on tax rates, and some of them successfully. Well, around about 1998, the OECD, which tends to have the, the uh, um, it's a non-legal status, but they tend to be the custodians of, uh, of the knowledge, if I can use the phrase from the film on taxi drivers in London in the 1960s, they have the knowledge, they tend to say, oh gee, this is base erosion and profit shifting is a real worry. So they started to say tax competition is a bad thing. Now people said, well, what's wrong with competition? doesn't it lead to efficiency, etc. And they said, oh no, no, this is unfair tax competition or uh, there should be standards and so on. And they started saying, well, um, they originally wanted uniform tax rates across the EU and there's no way you're going to get 22 countries to agree on a common tax rate. 
that was pie in the sky. But they did start this demonization of tax havens and tax avoidance, and they've gradually been working on it since the 90s. And, and, uh, and uh, they've got the result now that um, they've said, hang on, we want to tear up the treaties. The treaties were written when Britain and America were the great capital exporters to the world. Um, in 1914, about half of Britain's income came from overseas. The British Empire was a huge commercial operation. I mean, there were British bondholders and shareholders who would own shares in Indian railways, uh, Australian pastoral properties, uh, um, Australian trading companies. The ANZ Bank, by the way, was a British company till the 1970s. It was actually, uh, it was the Bank of Australasia in 1836, I think it um, had a Royal Charter and the Union Bank, and, but they were both British, the English, Scottish and Australian Bank was there when I grew up. All these three banks were actually British banks operating in Australia and New Zealand, and they were funded by British capital. So that was why the British wanted this system of taxing, of saying to the colonies, you don't tax the bank profits much. You give a credit for anything that comes in, but you don't tax much and we'll tax them in London and we'll supply the Royal Navy and protect you. And that was fine, you know, everybody was happy with that. But the history of the system is, was based on that premise. Well, the trouble is, since World War II, America and Britain have no longer saved as much money. They're capital importers as much as exporters. America is a huge capital importer from China. Britain uh, has squandered her national savings. And I'm not saying squandered necessarily. I mean, two world wars have taken a huge toll. I think maybe World War I, you could argue, was a huge mess and avoidable. World War II, sadly, was not. But anyway, it cost the British um, uh, uh, people hugely. Um, so basically, a country that used to get half its income from overseas by the end of World War II was pretty broke. So the system has gradually changed. And uh, they're saying now we um, see Apple, the American companies, Apple and Google, exploiting this system and treating us the way we used to treat colonies or, or uh, Shanghai or the treaty ports, and they're stripping profits out. And, and we're not getting much and getting much money out of Starbucks or Amazon. The French have just raided Google and saying we want 1.6 billion out of Google. Now, what we're looking at now is not a war on tax avoidance, it is actually a war between countries. And the war, and when people talk about a unified front of governments fighting over tax collection, they're really talking about a war between the United States government now and the United States Treasury and the French and Italian treasuries. Every dollar that Google has to pay or Amazon has to pay to the French or Italian governments reduces a deferred tax credit that the US Treasury will have to pay out when those profits are remitted from Ireland, for example, or Luxembourg, back to, to, uh, to New York, so, or California. Basically, the US Treasury knows this. So while on the face of it, there's all sorts of cooperation between countries and stamping out tax avoidance, it is actually a war over dividing up a pie. And it's a case of thieves about to fall out. Because the truth is, the US Treasury knows damn well that it is the one that is going to be paying for all this. And I went to a conference in Canberra a while back and there was a professor there who remarked that he knows one of the US Treasury negotiators who goes to Paris to discuss these things. And, uh, and it's a very political game. Anyway, the US Treasury negotiator says, 
I'm not sure why every time I go to Paris, I feel I'm the one who's going to pay for lunch. They know damn well that the US Treasury is going to be paying for it. So the problem you've got now is we are looking at emerging tax wars because as countries fight over, over tax avoidance, it's starting to emerge that in a way the tax havens are not really stripping off billions and billions of dollars. Most of the money going through tax havens goes from one OECD economy to another and it does pay some tax there. Sometimes it pays less tax than it would, sometimes it pays more, but in the long run we're talking more about tax deferral, not tax avoidance, or we're talking about um, non-double taxation. So in attacking the tax havens and attacking places like Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man or the Bahamas or Cayman Islands or whatever, they are, tax, uh, they are like people tinkering with a machine that's developed or an organic system that's developed over many years and they run the risk of actually like unskilled doctors poisoning the patient or, or putting sand into the pistons or the oil. Um, I don't think they know quite what they're doing because most of them are not lawyers and they've actually have they've never really been in business or seen how it works. But the danger I see in this is that we are tax systems, as Henry George predicted with tariffs, can lead to wars. And we are seeing an economic war because every government after the GFC has lost a lot of money. The welfare states in Europe can't be funded because the supply of useful labour has stopped breeding, as Adam Smith predicted it would. They have written out cheques for themselves on the basis of a generation they'd, out of the pockets of a generation they didn't bother producing <laughs> to succeed them, and they think somebody else will pay. Well, there's always pie in the sky, and uh, there's muddle-headed wombats, and uh, and magic puddings and all that sort of thing, but it doesn't happen that way in reality. So I see a real risk in all of this international hoo-ha over tax avoidance and the fights over base erosion and profit shifting, the fights between the Europeans and the Americans, and the fight against sovereign countries like Panama. I see a real risk that in fact we will end up with tax wars as dangerous for the world economy and living standards as the Smoot-Hawley tariff war in the 1930s. In the 1930s, America unilaterally put up a huge tariff and it made the world depression much worse because uh, fundamentally Germany could no longer pay its way because the Americans were putting a tariff on its goods. It went into default on payments. They had to be written off under the Dawes plan, etc., etc., And it disrupted world trade. And once world trade is disrupted, you have uh, consequences. And of course, if living standards fall, people head towards fascism. And I'm therefore in a way not surprised that Mr. Trump is popular in the United States because living standards in the United States have been falling for the average worker since about 1975 and they've accelerated since the GFC. I personally know somebody who lost her house in the GFC and has never, has been a single working woman for her life, has done, worked hard, been a professional person no dependence and yet, yet she doesn't have a house. She lost her house um, as a result of the GFC and losing jobs and so on. So you can see when you get that sort of thing happening to people, you can understand why people may be upset with their governments and upset with the system. So um, fruitful ground for um, eventually fascism if, um, if uh, living standards fall. So what's the solution? The solution according to economists and 
politicians and publicists is, oh, well, we'll just put the tax havens out of business. Well, I've pointed out to you that really is masking the real fight between governments and he's ignoring the question of damage done. But I would suggest to you there's a, mother, a bigger casualty which has yet to emerge. The war against income tax avoidance fundamentally requires a war on Magna Carta. It requires a war on constitutional principles which have governed this country and the United Kingdom for centuries. It requires that government know everything about your financial affairs. Just stop and think. <coughs> if you had told me in the 1960s, when I went to open a bank account and I was given two cards at the Commercial Banking Company of Sydney Branch in Pimble, I went to open a cheque account or whatever, I just wrote two on two cards, bank account opened in five minutes. No ID requested, no bureaucracy, no fuss, simple transaction, concerned only two people, the bank and me. I am a depositor, I'm lending the bank my money, they're meant to give it back to me when I want it. That's all banking is about from the point of view of the depositor. Well, now you have to be ID'd. You have to produce maybe your passport. If you're an American citizen, you have to self-report yourself so it can be referred back to uh, the US Internal Revenue Service, even if you're born in this country, you've never set foot in the US. And because they tax on citizenship as well as on residency. If you're an American citizen, and there's seven million of them outside America, even if you're born outside the USA, have never done anything about it, if you're, you will technically be reported back to the US Internal Revenue Service and may be fined for non-reporting for 50 years or something. Um, something is going to happen to a lot of foreign students who've gone back to their home countries. So basically what's now happening is the banks are collecting this information and under what's called the OECD Common Reporting Standard, and I love this phrase, the Common Reporting Standard, whose standard is this? Did we get to vote on it? Did we? It's just an internationally self-appointed body of experts who are writing out rules which governments rubber stamp. And they've lumped onto the very good system of getting the G20. When you get 20 heads of government, they all get together, have a jamboree for two days. They all think they're great friends. You know, it's lonely at the top. It's nice to talk to a fascist dictator at the top because at least he understands the problems of being in government. We have more, they have more in common with each other than they do with, with us. Anyway, they, the bureaucrats are smart. They think, well, if we can, all the tax officers can work together at the bottom, we work out a common agenda, send it up to our bosses, and the bosses will all rubber stamp it. It's the way bureaucracy always works. You always work laterally, then send it up to your respective bosses. They're all primed to sign it, and you get what you want from down the bottom. And that's exactly what's happening in international tax policy. The trouble is, the rubber stamping that's going on is governments have now committed, four, I think 80 governments have committed to automatic exchange of information. And there are acronyms everywhere in this, and acronyms are wonderful for bureaucrats. It's AEOI, Automatic Exchange of Information, and in the case of the tax havens, it's actually unilateral. They don't really want to exchange, but they're being bludgeoned into knuckling under. Uh, the other acronym is CRS, Common Reporting Standard, and what all this is about is basically making sure that every government in the world can track the worldwide financial assets 
of every one of its residents or citizens, depending on what it wishes, or both. What does that mean? Okay. I am, say, an executive for BHP. I am negotiating iron ore contracts with a state corporation in China or India or somewhere else. I have a $7 million superannuation fund built up over many years as an exec back in Australia. I'm living in Shanghai or Bombay or somewhere or in the Middle East. I have that information reported back to the foreign government in the country I'm living in. And next thing I know, the local police chief knows my income and my assets. He knows where I live. He knows how much I'm worth. Um, I have a daughter who goes to a kindergarten down the road, around the other side of the street, taken there by a chauffeur and picked up in that foreign country and one day she doesn't come home and I get a phone call saying I want two million dollars in Bitcoin in 24 hours or you will not see your daughter again and I want it untraceable. You cannot assume that other governments will protect your personal private data. You cannot assume that other countries' tax systems are immune from corruption, from hacking. You cannot assume anything is safe. You cannot assume there won't be identity theft. You cannot assume that somebody might get this documentation and know enough about you and your birth date and so on to impersonate you on the phone and guess through the questions to answers to identify and authorise a transaction. And if you think I am talking about fantasy, the US government, which is supposed to be pretty tech savvy, and the US, government, the US invents all this technology, I think they lost the records of 22 million uh, social security recipients at one stage were hacked. The um, IRS lost the, had the files of 300,000 taxpayers. They weren't hacked actually. The, somebody was smart enough using publicly available information to guess the ID, ID questions. So you know how somebody says on the phone, what's your birth date? That doesn't really, that's not no longer private information. It's on so many databases now that there are many ways of finding out your birth date or my birth date or whatever. So if you know the questions, and this is what happened to the IRS, if you know the answers to the questions like where do you live, what's the street address, how many times have you gone through this with a bank or an insurance company? Uh, what's your phone number? Blah, blah, blah. All of those things will be discoverable more easily than ever before. And by the way, don't think that uh, corruption doesn't come into it. Actually, um, when people go on about money laundering and terrorism, they should remember the story of the Bank of New York, uh, I think it was in the 90s. The Russian mafia sent some chaps over to New York and they were rather handsome fellows and they charmed some young ladies who worked in the Bank of New York and lo and behold, over the next few years, a few billion went through, was, was laundered through the Bank of New York. A very respectable establishment and a very respectable, well-regulated country. So 
this invasion of privacy, it seems something that only millionaires would worry about. Okay, and you may think, well, maybe they don't, shouldn't have a right to privacy. Well, I have difficulty with that idea. I think either we all have rights or none of us have them. And Henry George, by the way, had no malice towards the wealthy, and I certainly have none towards the wealthy. Um, I think the wealthy, contrary to F. Scott Fitzgerald, are not different. The wealthy are just people faced with different temptations. Their temptations are to arrogance and contempt for their fellow man. Uh, the temptations of poorer people are towards envy and, and, and uh, theft, but temptations change. But the problem is either we all have rights, either we all believe in some concept of equality under law, either we all believe that government is our servant, not our master, and either we believe that public business should be accountable and transparent to us as the people who fund it, and not the other way around. Private business should not be accountable to public servants. They should manage the public affairs. We should be left alone with our private business. Either we believe that or we don't. And if we don't, we end up in a state of totalitarianism. And you think of what happens when the government knows everything about your financial affairs and, your, and everything else. You start to end up J. Edgar Hoover, the abuses of Nixon, with taxpayers, you end up with what the Nazis did to, to the Jews in Germany where they'd round up the assets and so on. In those days they had to do it by knocking on bank doors and so on. So I actually do feel, although I used to think privacy was a fairly twee sort of human right to, to worry about, I now understand the wisdom of the American founding fathers who put in the Fourth Amendment to the US Constitution and they were building on Magna Carta that the right of persons to, to, the, to their possession of their private papers and their privacy in their home should not be disturbed except by warrant sworn on probable cause. In other words, if the government thinks we're doing something criminal, fair enough, get a warrant, swear it out, say why they think we need to be checked out and have a, an independent judiciary authorise it. But this idea of automatic dragnetting of everybody's private information into mass databases which are going to be insecure necessarily because human beings are human beings, there is no unsinkable ship like the Titanic, you know. Nothing invented by man can't be cracked apart by man. You don't have that security. I think, in fact, there are very fundamental legal uh, and practical principles for opposing it bitterly. And you really have to admire the wisdom of Adam Smith when he said that the, one of the greater arguments against taxing capital and merchants was the profits of stock was the only way you could enforce it would be a vexatious inquisition into the affairs of every man. And that's exactly what we're getting now. So I think for 1776, in terms of international tax policy, Adam Smith was ahead of him by at least 200 plus years. Now, that I think has dealt with the question I raised about why I think our existing tax system is heading towards a state of crisis, because we're seeing this fundamental clash between the rule of law and human rights with the demands of the revenue. And as Henry George realised, that has to give. In the end, people will revolt. In the Roman Empire, when you had that clash, what people did was they would cheat, disappear, um, not till the fields. You know, resistance to tax gatherers became legendary. and uh, and. Uh, Basically, the Roman army couldn't, and the Byzantine army could no longer supply the troops. They couldn't feed them and ha have enough, and that's one of the reasons the Byzantine Empire gradually co collapsed. They, uh, 
it's fiscal and demographic exhaustion. So let's say we've looked at this and we've said, yes, we know the economics. We see the economic argument that um, land, land is the only thing you really can tax permanently without harmful effects. We understand the, um, the legal arguments that in fact maybe other forms of taxation involve a totally, necessarily involve a totally unacceptable invasion of privacy rights and, and people and prejudice people's safety, completely contrary to the um, obligation of the sovereign. Yeah, we know it's all correct. And this is the problem Henry George has had and other people have had. How do we make the change? If we accept that income tax isn't working, if we accept that tax avoidance is making it difficult to administer the income tax system and, and an unacceptable cost to trying to stamp it out, because um, the trouble is, um, as I've sometimes said, the history of taxation is a history of two things, actually. The history of taxation is first, a history of the landholders trying to shift the burden of paying for the country onto the workers, onto the plebs, through shifting from feudal dues or land taxes onto consumption taxes. And the other part of the history of taxation is, um, is um, it's a history of a fight between the conveyancing draftsmen and the legislative draftsmen. And usually, um, I always say the conveyancing draftsmen win because with trusts or other things, the conveyancing or the private sector draftsmen have been able to draft their way around most legislation. And usually the legislative draftsman has to react and come up with a new anti-avoidance provision. And by that stage, the conveyancing draftsman has moved ahead. And I sort of say the only way the conveyancing draftsman can win is to rip up the rule book and retrospectively at the end of every, every now and then and, uh, and scare people off. But suppose we accept all that and we say, well, how are we going to do the change? If you turned around today and said from 1 July 2016, there will be a general federal land value tax of 5% of the unimproved value of uh, land, and we will cut income taxes by a corresponding amount and GST by a corresponding amount. In theory, on paper, that should work. But as with all change, there are winners and losers. And politically, this is a problem for a practical politician. Or as Adam Smith said, that crafty animal, the statesman. Think about tax reform now. We were told that the GST was an efficient tax. If you raise the GST, the GST, you will have income to fund tax, income tax cuts. And the government itself looked at that and threw it out. Why? Because it realised for every dollar it raised in GST, it would have to spend maybe 30 or 40 cents compensating losers from the GST. It would only have maybe 60 to 70 cents to dish out as income tax cuts. Now, that's a pretty dangerous calculus if you're a politician. You might upset more people than you gain votes from. If you look at land value tax, what we've got to realise is a lot of the land of Australia is no longer owned by Australians. It's owned by foreigners, foreign companies, um, 
and there's obviously a lot of Australian apartments and one of the reasons we're getting the massive overbuilding of apartments is when you have a politically unstable country in some ways potentially as China where there are occasional party purges going on or reforms or anti-corruption <coughs> campaigns whatever you call them naturally somebody who's made his money completely honestly making shirt buttons for example he might have made a hundred million dollars creating shirt buttons for every shirt sold around the world in the last 30 years since um, the Chinese economy was opened. Well, if he's got $100 million, he might like to sink a few million at least into some residential property. And we allow foreigners to buy off the plan to encourage the building of residential property. So we've actually sucked a lot of Chinese capital into building a housing stock in the form of high-rise apartments, which actually not necessarily what the Australian people living here want, but that's the only thing the Chinese investor can put his money into, or new housing. So you have this situation where a lot of land has ended up in foreign hands. So if you tax that, and if um, you tax the land owned by foreign corporations, and you put a value on mining tenements, for example, I mean mines have a value, they're real estate, um, you would actually raise a lot of money for every dollar you raise out of Australians paying land value tax, you might end up with a dollar ten or a dollar twenty in land tax revenue because non-Australians or people outside Australia are paying non-voters. Now, from a political point of view, that's a real plus because you can actually give away more in tax concessions on income tax or GST than you are raising from your voters. Now, how good is that um, as a political thing? I mean. Um, I just don't understand why most po more politicians don't get it. But there is still a problem, and the classical problem is the owner-occupier. And the owner-occupiers fall into two classes. You have the working owner-occupier, the salary man, say, as the Japanese would call him, with a wife and dependent children or whatever, or two working people or whatever, and they're paying high income tax rates because they've the prime of their professional careers, they've worked hard, and they say, hang on, we're going to get income tax cuts. You're going to reduce our top rate from 49% from down to, say, 30%, but that's only 19%. 19% on a, a salary of $80,000, um, let me see how quick my mathematics is, is uh, that's nearly 20 on 80. That's about 25%. Um, I'm going to save 19,000. But, but our house in Sydney is worth a million dollars, 5% is 50,000, so we're being screwed over. So you're going to get that sort of question. Well, that's one reason why you can't do it necessarily suddenly. You'll create shocks in the market. But there is a way of making sure you don't get over-taxation as you're doing it. And I suggest the way to do that is to say, if you're going to introduce a land value tax, what you're really saying is if you're a Henry Georgist, a follower, or you would say, well, hang on, land value tax is the only tax people should pay. To the extent they've paid that, they should be regarded as having discarded their civic obligation and be entitled to a credit against other taxes. Now, you can't, it's very difficult to give a credit against consumption taxes, but you can give a straight credit against income taxes. So if somebody has paid $10,000 worth of income tax and he's paid $5,000 worth of land tax, you say to him, well, we'll treat your land value tax as a credit against your income tax, and we will be able to treat that like PAYG. You can reduce your PAYG payments and get an immediate 
um, benefit in your in your earnings from wages. So you, wages. So you've immediately increased his return from working, as opposed to being sitting on his uh, on his land. Actually, I first realised this many years ago when I was in the Treasury, and I was allegedly in the top 10% of income earners in Australia. And I thought, you know, this is funny. I'm living in a house that's pretty crappy compared to what I grew up in on the North Shore of Sydney. Um, I'm supposed to be in the top 10%. I'm ending up uh, owing money to bank card at the end for Christmas. We had three kids at this time. And I've just managed to stretch myself to put in, put in some ducted gas heating which um, to keep the place bloody warm in these miserable Canberra winters. And there's no insulation in the roof and that was fibro anyway. Maybe I've got asbestosis, I don't know, but I've been going long enough and you can put up with me for a bit longer. But <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, my after-tax income this year is about $25,000 or something. I worked it out and, uh, and uh, I worked out the land appreciation and the house appreciation. I think after-tax was about $20,000. I thought, why on earth do I bother working for the public interest? <laughs> I should just learn how to borrow and become a speculator. But um, this is a problem. If you're changing a system, you have people who, who are in the suburbs who will be facing a rise in their tax bills, they're in marginal seats, it's a practical political matter. Unless you give them a credit to owner occupiers or some method of making sure they're compensated, they will be your most militant political opponents. Another issue, of course, is the pensioner. The little old lady is a typical, stereotypical example with a North Shore house worth a couple of million. Um, and people will say, well, if they have to pay, they don't have to pay any tax, they're beneficiaries. Well, the obvious answer there is just defer it until um, the person moves or, the, or dies or whatever. So you don't force anyone out. You can just defer the tax liability and claim it against the estate. So those two cash flow problems can be dealt with. But don't think that that means you don't, you know, people say, well, hang on, you've given away a lot of money. Yes, you have. But you've given it away to people you'd be giving it away to anyway. But the point is, landlords would get a deduction. A deduction is worth less, less than a credit. Um, businesses and, and, uh, and agriculture, farms would, could get a credit for the homestead part. But basically, you would be collecting money from those. You would have enough money to significantly reduce marginal rates. I mean, the amount of the cost of reducing the top marginal rates, say from 49% to 30%, is a lot less than the cost of reducing the standard rate from 30% to 20%. So you can at least start doing it that way. And of course, if you had a credit, what you would have is a vanishing credit. So that as people who are owner-occupiers, as their land tax payments gradually rose above their income tax payments, they couldn't get a, it wouldn't be a cash, re, a refundable credit. It would be a vanishing credit. You say, okay, yes, you should be paying land value tax. You've exhausted your credit against your income tax. Now, they might say, well, why can't I get a credit against GST? Well, maybe you could think about that too, or maybe you could shift the GST back to income tax. In fact, GST is an income tax. Most people don't realise that in fact GST is not a separate tax base to income. GST is just a tax on income spent. So it's really an income tax surcharge on income not saved. So I do think it is possible politically to design a shift from income tax and from consumption tax 
to land value taxation in a way that is politically saleable. I just don't think most people have technically thought about the ins and outs of it in designing a political package. And I think it is a much more promising uh, tax reform uh, package for three reasons. Firstly, it's economically the right thing to do. You are taxing an immobile factor of production as opposed to variable factors of production. In fact, even the OECD admits this. When you look at their stuff on tax, after all this rubbish they've gone into about tax avoidance, how terrible it is, if you look up what they've written, they have admitted that a tax on an immobile factor of production is far better than taxes on mobile factors of production. So you're moving to a more economically efficient tax. And by the way, as you cut your tax rates in this country, you increase, you induce an increased demand for land. If people can m keep more to themselves of what they get by making land productive, then of course they will be much more active in putting land to good use. You are penalising speculation, you are make a res making resources, pressing resources to be made available for production, you're reducing the burdens on people putting land to active use, so you are getting a win-win across and by making sure the non-residents pay, um, you can actually end up with more cash to give away in tax cuts on income or GST than you are taking from Australians. So I don't see why it is not possible for an intelligent politician to craft a winning tax reform package on that basis. But your two danger areas are the retirees or uh, pensioners in, in homes who don't have sufficient income to pay a land value tax and your owner occupiers and those are the two groups politically which would be sensitive and understandably so and the reason they are sensitive is there is a motto uh, you can call it uh, uh, DeWire's axiom of treasury having been a treasury officer is treasury has a motto and it's called never give a sucker an even break the trouble is Treasury has botched its record on tax reform. It has never really been an entirely honest broker. All tax reform we have seen has been more about maximising the tax take rather than having genuine reform in terms of shifting from one tax base to another. And you can understand the ordinary voter thinking, yeah, yeah, in theory it's right, mate, but I know it'll just be another bloody tax and they're not going to give us any relief on anything. So when you're faced with that credibility gap, Entirely self-induced, I might add. I mean, Treasury has, I, I have, I mean, you know, I hate to s speak ill of some of my former colleagues, but I don't think their record on tax reform has been outstanding. I think they have been economists who have been a little Aspergerish at times. And I'm done. a little Aspergerish myself, but, you know, there are limits. <laughs> but uh, but, um, but uh, they uh, have really broken faith too many times the electorate for the electorate to trust them. And in that regard, I, I am amazed, and I'll just end on this, in terms of political incompetence, I don't think I could have done better than to accept what was put up to me by Treasury. I mean, I couldn't believe the Treasury superannuation proposals. I don't know if they were Treasuries, actually, I'd love to know who really invented them. But this lifetime cap on superannuation contributions of half a million, backdated back to 1 July 2007, I mean, whoever dreamt this up has no idea of how tax law operates in the real world. There are superannuation funds that have entered into contracts to buy property by the 30th of June this year. They're relying on $540,000 
lump sum undeducted contributions to complete the contract and they're wondering what do they do now? Do they break the contract and lose say $100,000 or $200,000 under deposit? Or do they get the extra money in and just worry about what happens, etc., etc. Now, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, this is brilliant. They've done it. They did it to Tony Abbott. They set him up with a budget that screwed over his single income family constituents and mortgage belt voters and family payments and ripping off the compensation John Howard given to the GST. They've now set up this government with getting stuck into liberal voting, self-managed super fund <laughs> contributors, said it brilliantly, and they've done it with retrospective effect. They've done it with an election for July the 2nd. And what are people doing between now and June the 30th? They're going to their tax accounts, their advisors and their SMS specialists to work out their strategies for the next year. You've done it at a time when you've guaranteed that everyone will be focusing their mind on what you're doing to them. And I just wrote a comment on LinkedIn and I thought, the p I trust the public servant who handed the poisoned cup to the master will be duly recognised for his achievements. And all I can say is if I, ever, if I were Mr Turnbull and I got re-elected, and this was what I was told was tax reform, after I got elected, I think I'd be organising a few executions. Now, if that can be put up as a form of tax reform, I reckon I could do a far better job with shifting to land value taxation in a way that would make it credible and keep faith with the electorate and not treat them as fools. So on that note, I'll leave it with you. Thank you very much, Jim. <laughs> 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 <laughs>